Hi, it's Adam here. It's been a long time, but we are about to launch season four of Deep Convection. And as we've done in all the previous seasons, we're starting with a little season opener featuring a conversation between me and my co-creator and creative director, Melanie Bielli. So first, I caught up with Melanie about what's going on with her. Because the other guests tell us their life stories once on this podcast, but with Melanie, we're doing sort of a real-time experiment where we follow her as it happens a little bit at the start of every season. Then she asked me about the latest in my midlife crisis and all of that, and the conversation meandered a bit, and then Melanie asked me whether the latest developments in artificial intelligence make me scared. And the answer is yes. So we talked about that for a while. And then at the end, we talked for a minute, maybe not really much more than that, about what this coming season of episodes will be about. So that's it. Here's Melanie and me opening Deep Convection Season 4. Okay, Melanie, here we are. Here we are again. Four seasons <laughs> of deep convection. Yeah. It seems like a long time because it has been a long time. Well, I was going to say, it doesn't just seem like it's been a long time. It's been, yeah, yeah, definitely more than a year since we last recorded an opener. Well, I was thinking even since we started doing this podcast, it's even longer, several years. And yeah, uh, yeah 2019 or so. Yeah. It must have been 2019, yeah. It was just before I I got my PhD. And it was before the pandemic. It feels like the first so much season has was... happened. We live in a different world now. Yeah. And a world in which this podcast is produced very slowly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> slower than ever in this last yeah. time, and mostly because of me. Um I, think I don't I'm think that's name. true. Yeah, well, it's, um, yeah, there's a variety of reasons, but mostly me. Um, but let's get to that in a minute. I think I think one of the good things about, one of the reasons I like to do these um, preseason things is that it gives us an excuse to catch up with the evolution of your life. So, oh, really? Can we start with have, a catch-up? I would on, not have agreed on, <laughs> to record this opener if I had known that. Um, well, we don't have to go into detail, but like, you know. The, no, 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 that's know. fine. Um, I, I'll just have to think about where, where we were or what was happening last time we, we, we recorded an opener. Um, I was probably still doing uh, my, a postdoc at Caltech. I mean, Almost certainly, yes. living in Portland, Oregon, but yeah, doing a remote postdoc, essentially. Yes. Um, and yeah, what has happened since then? So I um, I did another cross-country move. I think I think we talked about cross-country moves in the last opener. That's yes. been another one. <laughs> You've so gotten first, good at those, um, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's a routine thing now for us. <laughs> we almost need it. This the annual cross-country move. It's a thing. Um, no, but I, um, so I ended my postdoc, um, because I, uh, I found a job, uh, in 
the reinsurance industry at a company called Swiss Re, which is one of the largest reinsurance companies. And um, I work on natural catastrophe modeling. So after I had signed their offer, we had to go to Switzerland to get our new visas. Mm, right. And yeah. And I mean, then of course, also it was a, a welcome break. Um, so we went there. Um, it turned out to be a longer break than, than we had anticipated because it took the U.S. Embassy in Bern forever to process our visa application. So we ended up staying there for almost, I want to say almost half a year. I'm not quite sure that's true. Yeah, this uh, is coming so back to me now. Yeah. Yeah. There was a bit of traveling also. It was fun. So we really had a lot of time to reconnect with our families. It was, it was, a, it was a very good reset. And our daughter, Zyra, she got to really um, live with, with her grandparents. I think that was fantastic for everyone involved. And then we moved back in November, back to the U.S., um, to the East Coast, so New York area, Connecticut, technically. Yeah. 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 I remember you saying, I remember that you were, you were stuck in Switzerland for months waiting for the embassy. Enjoying family time is the official version. Not uh, stuck what I remember you, the, the line that stuck in my mind from one of your messages was, um, you know, it's frustrating that the embassy is taking forever and they don't communicate and we don't have a date, but I think the grandparents are mailing them chocolates. Yep. <laughs> to thank yeah, them for I mean, keeping you stuck there. <laughs> with the, uh, meaning of that. Yeah, my my mom especially. She didn't, you know, she didn't make make it a secret that she was. Yeah, she was really hoping for that outcome. Like when we <laughs> at the point when we knew that we would have to, when we finally had our appointment and we knew it was going to be in, I don't know, three months or so. She was just overjoyed. It was it's really nice to see. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like we should say, um, as we, you know, since you brought up your job, your new job at Swiss Re, I feel like it's an appropriate thing for this podcast to mention that you worked there before, uh, before coming to graduate school, right? This was a return, yeah. although different, different office, different people, but same company. Exactly. Yeah. I did an internship there, um, right after I finished my master's degree at ETH Zurich and yeah, um, that was, yeah, at some point, apparently I got so bored of the beautiful view of Lake Zurich that you have from Swiss Re's offices that I decided to move to New York and start a PhD at Columbia. Um, yes. I mean, we talked about this at the end and during your season one, uh, interview, but, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, no, and it's of... it's been it's been it's been good. Um, I will admit that there's there's a bit of the, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side going on. Just this is my, yeah. I mean, I I left academia, and yeah, I think I think it's well. You never have the counterfactual, right? <laughs> I'm just gonna claim it's probably good that I did, and at the same time, you know talking with 
friends that are that still are in academia sometimes yeah i miss it also Thanks. yeah well yeah i understand that and um you know we miss you too but on the other hand it's for from for us your old uh academic uh family here at columbia it's nice that you're close and not only close physically but you know we have a relationship with swiss re we've we've done research projects with your team there before you were on it um yeah and uh so it's nice that we get to see you now and again uh and yeah, it's and to me it's i mean i'm happy that you're still in the field in one way or another um that know, is you true you even though you are kind of entertaining the thought of I don't want to say transitioning out of academia as well, but you're also kind of thinking about putting more time yeah. into private sector. Yeah, I've, I've um, yeah. you know, yeah, my midlife crisis has led me to think about <laughs> various, uh, what various possibilities might be for the rest of my career or some part of it or something. But at this point, nothing has changed and um, maybe nothing will. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, um, let's leave it there. I don't, I don't, uh, I, I'll just say that. I don't want to um, talk more about it. I feel like these openers are oh. also always good opportunities to catch up on the status of your midlife crisis. My midlife crisis. Yeah. I mean, I thought about maybe spending some time in the private sector and I talked to some people, nothing has worked out, um, so far. I was going to say, if, if you feel that this would be a natural um, continuation of the thought process you've been going through, this podcast, I mean, it's a product of your of your midlife crisis. I mean, yeah, we jokingly call it your midlife crisis, but of this <laughs> feeling that um, as a climate scientist working in academia, there is in a way, not that much you're actively, you can actively do um, to kind of help address the problem. And so yeah. talking, or you've been talking with your guests a lot also about, yeah, what, what a scientist should do, um, whether we should move toward uh, more into a direction of producing usable science. And yeah. So I can see your, um, your idea of also doing something like a yeah, sabbatical in the private sector um, as something that could follow from that. Yeah. Um, let's see. What do I want to say about that? I guess the first thing is that the longer this goes on, the more strange it seems to call it a midlife crisis. I'm starting to feel like I'm late life at this point. <laughs> it's a life crisis um, by now. <laughs> I, think I'm, I think I'm at the later stages, last stages of what anyone would call a midlife. But um, yeah, this thought process continues. I guess, you know, um, it's a struggle between thinking about what's, what's useful, what's usable, uh, and what I can actually realistically do what I can be effective at and, you know, what are the real world possibilities and, um, you know, nothing big in fact has changed, I, I guess in terms of the private sector, an interesting development in the last couple of months, few months has been 
a couple of um, reports that have come out to the federal government or by the federal government or by advisory groups of the federal government. One, the President's Council of Advisors in Science and Technology, and another one by the, uh, oh gosh, what is it called? It's essentially the White House Office of Economic Advisors, but it has the report has another name that I forget. Um, but Fran Moore, one of our former guests, is the author of, a, of the relevant chapter. These reports that are saying that the public sector, the government and uh, nonprofits and, and just the public generally should have a set of models and data and tools for climate risk assessment like what's been built in the private sector over the last few years. And um, that's very much in the line of what I've been thinking about and talking about to my colleagues, to our colleagues over the last year or two. And so I'm starting to think that maybe the the best thing I could do would be to figure out a way to do that, which would be not in the private sector. In other words, the private sector has been racing ahead. The public's kind of left behind and, and um, maybe the, maybe the, the best thing to do would be to work in, you know, continue in academia or the, or the, or government to, to build up this capacity. I don't know how to do that yet, but that's what I'm thinking about. But the other thing that's happened over this period that's been interesting is that at the same time, I've, I've been pretty ineffective at solving this problem of what to do with one's life as a scientist. The fact that I've been talking about it so much, both in this podcast and in various talks I've been giving and one little paper I wrote, has has brought a lot of positive feedback. And I've started to felt like that's an activity of its own. The sort of theorizing about it rather than doing it has really resonated with people. And the podcast, of course, has been at the core of that. So I'm thinking about that too. I, I think one thing the last year or two has shown, or at least has given some evidence for, is that the core of the ev- audience for this podcast is graduate students mm-hmm. uh, in in climate science. And I recently, um, and I've started having like at at conferences, I've had students come up to me and talk about the podcast. You know, people I don't know. Um, that say, you know, that are, 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 that, that enjoy it or get something out of it. I recently had a couple of days at university of Washington as a visit, giving some lectures there, uh, in a, in a lecture series where the students choose the lecturer. So they chose me and I, you know, they, a lot of them wanted to talk about, yeah, a lot of them wanted to talk about the podcast. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's why they chose me or not, but it's definitely something that they were familiar with. And so that has got me thinking like, uh, we, it's not surprising. I mean, we always knew this would be, this would be part of the audience, but it's, um, it's been very gratifying to get that feedback. And it's also made me think, okay, what does this mean? You know, if, if all the students are, um, and they're all thinking about these questions, they're not, they're not, I was going to say, can you uh, can maybe, yeah, say something about which themes resonate with, with these students? Well, I, I can tell you that they, first of all, they just say they like it. Second of all, they say they like hearing the old people talk about all the things that happened to them. They don't get to hear us talk in those, you know, kind of frank ways about life. Some said, oh, during the pandemic, it was really good because we were starved for sort of conversation about science and life and career because we weren't in the office. And this was the kind of lifeline to that. Those are all wonderful, gratifying comments to hear. But also, podcast or not, it has just become increasingly clear that the youngest generation of early career scientists um, is very, very much thinking about um, the impact of the work they're doing or going to do and their and usable science and, and how to do work that's applicable rather than just doing 
um, basic research for its own sake. And I think that's a very recent change. In other words, I think, so you got your PhD in 2019, right? So you're, I don't know, 20 years younger than me, but I think there's more of a difference between the current graduate students and your generation than between yours and mine in this way. Yeah. That sounds plausible to me. Yeah. How has your own thinking uh, evolved uh, in terms of how do you see has the, has the urgency of the climate problem, has it changed for you since, since we started doing the podcast? <sighs> no, but, um, but politically things have changed, right? So we have a, mm -hmm. we have a sort of, I don't want to say we have a sane government. I mean, we have a, we have a, a you know, a crazy polarized dysfunctional two party system, but you know, Biden's president instead of Trump and that has calmed my uh, psyche for now, at least for now, at least. Yeah. I mean, the threat of all kinds of horrible stuff remains present, but it's easier for me to go through the day not thinking about it. And, you know, there's been some major action. I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act got passed probably between mm -hmm. the last time we recorded this and now. And, um, you know, so we're starting to see much more climate action, even if it's still inadequate to the scope of the problem. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I think the, the midlife crisis was partly about the urgency of the climate problem and partly about the sense that um, the realization that that my belief in the value of the work we do was connected to an implicit, maybe unexamined belief that we worked within a system that somehow fun was functional, um, you know, mm -hmm. political system that knew how to make sense of the, of our work and do something with it and knew how to function generally, despite all of its flaws. And that was kind of shattered during Trump. And so now when things are a little better, it's sort of a little easier to, I don't know that it's changed my conscious view of it, but it's certainly, you know, calming. Yeah, you feel less helpless probably when you see that at least the work that you create, it doesn't just, you know, get lost or get ignored. Yeah, not my work personally, but the work of the field. Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's, um, you, you, the climate scientists, yeah. Yeah, no, talking about the urgency of the climate problem, it just made me think of... Uh, a question that that I actually have been wanting to ask you for a long time. What do you think of um, AI risk? Oh, I'm terrified by it, but okay. But I, you know, but I don't. For various reasons, I have misgivings. About, I mean, so that we're talking on a a day when just in the last day or two, these big uh, CEO, AI CEOs and and others put out this statement that we have to take existential risks seriously. I don't totally love the the whole um, effective altruist take on this because I think it favors sort of long-term science fiction-y stuff over immediate problems and in a way that can be harmful sometimes. But, um, but but it still scares the crap out of me. I mean, so a, okay. a story I can tell is like, I, I gave this lecture at AGU. Um, it was, this, you know, an invited lecture at AGU called the Charney lecture in December. And the first time I ever played with chat GPT for any extended period of time was the night before that lecture. And I, um, I had dinner with, um, 
a few people from our group that you would know, um, Zane Martin and Jane Baldwin and others. And, and we were talking about this and I went home and I, I asked ChatGPT to write an op-ed in the style of Adam Sobel just to see what it would do. And I didn't tell it who I was. I just put in my name and it, it wrote a pretty, um, it wrote a, a, a pretty reasonable, if somewhat generic and, uh, anodyne, op-ed about climate. It was like, we have to do something about climate change to mm-hmm. save the children or something like that. And it was, and my first thought was I had a sequence of thoughts that I like, I can, <laughs> that came very quickly one on the heels of the other one was, wow, I'm amazed at how well it can do this. The second was, Oh, but this really isn't that good. I'm kind of insulted. It doesn't think I can write better than this. And then I thought, okay, well that's good. I still have a, there's still a purpose to my existence. And then I thought, well, but this thing is like th- two weeks old, you know, give yeah. it another year. That's the scary part. And that was ChatGPT3 probably at the time. Right. Yeah. And so I went to give the lecture the next day feeling like John Henry. Do you know the American legend of John Henry and the steam engine? I don't. John Henry is this, you know, it's the time when the steam engine came into existence, whatever the, whenever that was, 19th century. And it's this guy whose job was to, I don't remember what he was even doing, some manual thing where he had to hammer things or do something and that the steam engine could now do. And so this... He's this, you know, strong man and he has this race with the steam engine. And if my memory serves, he like wins but dies. And this, of course, the steam engine wins in the long run. And I really felt mm-hmm. like John Henry in some <laughs> sort of, I felt like, you know, there's still a point to me giving this lecture today. Like, yeah. hey, I can't do it yeah. yet as well as me. But it's it's a narrow window. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. five years, the AI might be giving the lecture and I might also be listening to the lecture. Like everybody, it just might be the AI is talking to each other. All I mean, it really is off. scary. Yeah. And that's that's one thing, right? I mean, the other the other uh, the other concern, of course, is that they might be uh, a threat to to humanity as a whole, not just to our jobs. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I really want I really wanted to ask you that, and in a way, I I'm not even sure whether I should say I'm uh, I'm relieved that this scares the crap of you as well or not, but. It's certainly something this is for me. This was the first time. I mean, climate change never gave me that. I think I'm generally not an anxious person. This is the first time that, uh, you want to call it a societal or technological development, actually scares me. And I don't mean in the abstract. It really, Mm. I think I would use the exact same phrasing. It scares the crap out of me. It's very visceral. It's yeah. I had a child in the middle of the pandemic. I never, I never wondered. I never had the feeling that you know now is not the time to bring a child into this world. I think you know life is great, living is amazing, um, and I don't regret bringing a child into this world at all. But this now is the first time where I really feel like wow, things things could go sideways. Because you think it could, you know, get control of the nuclear weapons and blow us all up or something or, or what? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's kind of, I mean, the problem is all these scenarios are, are extremely vague. So in that respect, it's, it's different from climate change, but there's also a lot of uncertainty, but at least Mm. we understand some things about the physical system. So we can, we have some, some, an understanding of the bounds what can happen there's a range of things that can happen but this here feel feels more like all bets are off and yeah one 
I mean, one possibility is that we, the humans, just mess it up and yeah, it all ends in nuclear war or something. And yeah, the other scenario is the kind of, you know, they, they always use the story of the paperclip maximizer. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's in a way, it's, it's ridiculous, yeah. but it's just kind of a metaphor or an illustration of how things could go wrong without us even, even messing it, messing it up actively just because, yeah, AI just gets too intelligent and is not completely aligned with our motives. And yeah, I, um, there's all those nightmare scenarios, but, um, in a way, the one that scares me more, not because it, just because I think it's more likely in some ways and easier to imagine, um, or not easier to imagine, but it can happen without any big breakthroughs. It, it's just that is connected to the job loss. I mean, I, you know, I have a kid that just graduated college. I don't know what to tell him about what, you know, what careers are going to survive this, but mm-hmm. the kind of outcome I can imagine easily, because I feel like we're already halfway there, is that the current concentration of wealth just gets more and more extreme where so many jobs can be done by AI and you end up with just a few CEOs controlling all the, you know, a few rich people controlling all the research resources of the world. AI does everything that it can and everybody else is just sort of serfs. I mean, I think it was you who, who uh, turned me on to that Ursula Le Guin story where the one guy owns everything and mm-hmm. and everybody else is just slaves and they say this isn't fair and he says well it's all legal you know i i did this all correctly so now I, and that's it's it's one of these logic you know reductio ad absurdum things but it's that's the one that i feel like it's already underway and and this is just going to make it happen faster and it doesn't require any big leap to advance general intelligence or anything like that it just requires straightforward steady improvements yeah seems yeah, like things it, that are right? already happening you know so that's, yeah, it's really scary. And um, not to mention, you know, I don't understand how if things keep getting better and the power keeps, you know, improving. I don't know how we're going to just amount the amount of energy it takes to do all everything AI is going to be doing. I don't, I don't know how to think about <laughs> There's that. There's the connection with the climate problem. There is. Yeah. Anyway, should we talk about the podcast? Yeah. Looking ahead to season four, what what are the, the themes and the issues that we're going to hear you talk about with your guests? Yeah, well, there's no single theme. And first of all, I should say that we might not put out a consecutive season of 10. We might do, I don't know, five or six first and then have a break and then do the rest. Or we might do something else. We've all become a little uh, disorganized, but um, but we have a bunch recorded. And I think we'll soon be able to start releasing at least uh, a set of five or six for starters before the summer slows me down again. But um, I think if there is a theme on the guest list, I think it's a broadening. I mean, we have a couple of climate scientists, but or maybe most of them are in one way or another. But I think we ha- we're going to have a higher proportion of those from adjacent fields, as we say, or even the scientists we have or the climate scientists we have are people whose part of their work is in adjacent areas in, in one form of societal application or another. Um, so yeah, it's a branching out um, to people that either work in the application of our, of our field or that uh, we have, we have somebody from climate finance. We have a photojournalist. 
we have um, a, a high government official from an important government agency. Uh, in our, uh, we have um, people doing economics and and studying how people use forecasts in real life, and so all those. Um, so the, the diversity of issues coming up is going to be a little broader, um, and I think that's a natural direction. Mm-hmm. Took a little while to happen, but it's happening now. And uh, yeah, so I don't want to name them because the whole list isn't finished yet anyway. Uh, but I think it's as interesting a group of people as as any of our seasons before, if different in those respects. And um, yeah, it's been slow. Again, mostly because of me, but but I'm excited to put these out and I hope that um, our audience is bearing with us <laughs> and we'll still listen to them, even though it's been a long time in season three. Sounds good. Should we close there? Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's fine. I would say we should keep it short, but we really didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing with all of these conversations, right? For some reason, it seems hard to, to keep them short. Well, we didn't even make an effort here. Yeah. No, that's fine. All right. Okay, Melanie. Always good to talk to you. And, always good uh, talking to you. Look forward to uh, season four being in the can. Yep. All right, that's it. Season four, here we go. My co-creator and creative director and conversation partner in this little episode is Melanie Bielli, and our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor, post-producer, and audio engineer are normally Eugenio Gonzalez, but I edited this episode. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.